I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There is no better group of ones for flower power. My thanks to this week's sponsor, Montrose of Soham in Cambridgeshire. Indoors in the warm today, uh, shelling some uh, runner beans. Got a pretty good uh, crop too. Hello and welcome to This Week in the Garden. I'm Peter Seabrook here to exchange some news, views, a bit of seasonal advice and uh, hopefully answer some of your gardening quandaries on the way. News? Well, uh, I have to tell you, I've been doing... um, a bit of a very pleasurable uh, hobnobbing and was taken to lunch by a former MP, Sir Brian Donoghue, in the Strangers Restaurant at the Houses of Parliament. I love these old buildings, beautifully wood-panelled walls, lofty ceilings and the view out of the Thames. It was a, a real treat. But you know what they say, there's no such thing as a free lunch and I was there to meet the chair of the all-party parliamentary garden and horticultural group, namely uh, the Right Honourable Ian Little Granger. I was staggered to hear him uh, say that no organisation or person, uh, until I arrived, had briefed him on the pro-peat case for horticulture and gardening. The more remarkable, really, when you know his constituency in Somerset includes some of the Somerset levels, where peat is still being harvested. To put it simply, there are three kinds of peat bog. There's the blanket peat bog on the hillsides in areas of high rainfall. And then there's a sphagnum peat raised bogs, which provide the best horticultural peat in my opinion. And then, of course, we've got the black fen soils, just as uh, they occur up in the fens and, to some extent, up in the northwest. Now, the raised bogs are called that because the mosses grow on a fairly level water and steadily build upwards, so the profile on the surface is like an upturned saucer. You know, the mosses appear to be uh, growing against gravity. But, of course, as they keep growing, so the ones uh, underneath sink and the older foliage sinks to the point it becomes peat. It can build to uh, over six metres and more, uh, as I've seen in Ireland and Lithuania. Uh, The thing of note is that uh, a virgin raised peat bog uh, can have less solids than a bottle of milk and if they are drained they have to sort of float the ditch cutting machines 
it can take years for the water to drain out of the, the surface of the peat enough to carry the weight of machines. And once a raised peat bog is cut and the area flooded again to a fairly shallow level and reseeded with sphagnum, it regrows quite quickly to a depth of five to seven centimetres in a year. And I don't just know this from reading, I've seen it for myself with such regeneration on the Dutch-German border. It will be seen from this that raised peat bog is renewable and the receded bogs also are very rapid absorbers of carbon dioxide. So if peat is harvested correctly and reinstated, it can be a renewable resource. Farming mosses in this way is called paludiculture. And while the anti-peat lobby say we should buy and use peat-free potting compost, what they do not say is where wood fibres are used in compost, for example, they can take as much as four times more fertiliser to compensate for the nitrates being absorbed by the wood. And as it breaks down, it will need twice the amount of water. This, of course, can lead to nitrate runoff into the drainage water. I'm absolutely sure that if a complete CO2 audit is undertaken, in the case of UK and Irish cut peat, it is more environmentally friendly to use in potting composts than the peat-free alternatives. And next week I hope to interview a specialist in the sphagnum peat propagation to hear firsthand about the refurnishing of damaged bogs of all kinds. This week in the emails, thanks from Michael in Suffolk for the interesting interview with Dr Henry Oakley. Oh, and uh, Anthony in Lincolnshire, he messaged to say thanks for the Fluoroselect ladies in Holland. And from Ard, that we interviewed, representing Prudac, uh, he tells me he's also had requests for his repeat cropping cauliflowers as a result of his broadcast. There's a query also from Richard Scott. He says, Peter, I seem to recall someone, maybe you, saying that you shouldn't cut autumn raspberries right to the ground after fruiting. This will result in a small crop of fruit on the old canes in early summer as the new canes emerge. Is this true, worth doing, or is it just diverting the plant's energies from producing the new canes? Much enjoy the podcast. Well, that's a good job. Yes, I have recommended that... uh, you don't cut autumn raspberries right to the ground after fruiting. And that's particularly in the case of more recently introduced cultivars. I have in mind the raspberry autumn treasure, which is very vigorous. Um, And certainly at this time of the year, if it's finished fruiting, and and I still picked a few fruit off um, one or two of my canes last week, But once it's finished fruiting, you run your eye down the cane and cut off all of the top growth that has had fruiting spurs. 
that should leave you with about five or six foot of unfruited cane and if you just leave that tied into the wire it will uh, produce a really good crop next June, July and then when those um, lower lengths of cane have fruited then late July you cut those right out and by uh, that time there'll be new canes which should start fruiting back August, September. It means that you just have one variety that will crop from June to November. But uh, you will need to water in dry weather and uh, give them a little bit of feed each year too. You know, when things are growing strongly and producing a big crop, you need to give them a bit of water and feed. Hope that uh, puts your mind at rest and that you have a good lot of raspberries next summer as well as in the autumn from the one set of canes. So there are some of you out there listening. Uh, thanks for letting us know what uh, you found of uh, interest and of good use. When it comes to seasonal advice, once the leaves are down, it's time to prune grapes. Certainly get this done by the end of December. Once the sap starts to rise again, uh, pruning cuts on vines will bleed profusely. It's uh, very difficult to stop. One of the MPs, too, sought advice when I was at the houses. He wanted to know how to control slugs in potatoes. Now, this is not easy. The um, black-keeled slug, so-called because it's black above and has a yellow keel below, it's really quite small and lives below ground. Getting at it is difficult. One of the old ways was to spear a piece of potato on a stick or a cane and bury it down in the soil, a number of them across the plot, lifting regularly uh, to catch them in these uh, potato traps. If you stand wide-based black plastic pots over dug soil or clean cleaned surface soil, you will often find keel slugs will come up and they'll be stuck onto the base of the black plastic pot and you can trap them in that way. There is biological control, watering on a parasitic nematode. Uh, this works particularly on sandy and free draining soil, although not so good on heavy soil because the nematode just can't swim about in those dense soils as easily. And of course, uh, you need the temperature to be warm when it drops late autumn round to early spring. I'm afraid uh, the earworm is not very active. Our guest on the podcast today is Chris Wiley. Perhaps I should describe him. An attractive young man, nicely bearded, who I've known for uh, several years now. But a year or so ago, he took a really big jump into the unknown and set off into business uh, on his own. Chris, how are things in sunny Ipswich today? They're not too bad today. Um, weather's been dry most of the week, so I've managed to get a lot done outdoors. So uh, just prepping for winter now. But yes, all good today. And could you outline to us what you've done since uh, you left training? I started a company called So Successful Limited in February last year. So just before all the lockdown started. So a uh, bit of a risk, but um, I started off renting some big greenhouses where I started running independent 
plant and product trials. So companies come to me with either a hard good or a plant that they want to undergo independent testing, whether that be plant breeders, their agents recommending me or the likes of QVC, for instance, wanting to see some independent results. That, that's where I started. And then the business grew from there. I started doing seed production work, which is where companies pass on stock seed to me of plants that they want to bulk up the seed whether that be for seed sales or or extra stock seed for them. So I started taking on things like that as well. And then obviously working alongside the likes of you, Peter, growing plants for, for flower shows. So it's kind of expanded um, in what, a year and a half now or just over. So uh, yeah, it, it's going, going well at the moment. <laughs> I think perhaps we should describe the scale of it. How can we best do that? I worked it out. I think, if I remember rightly, it's around 2,000 square metres, if, if that means anything to anybody. <laughs> Very sizable greenhouses, um, most of them unheated, but with automatic vents. Uh, but then you do a fair bit of propagation. How do you do that without heat? Yeah, so um, I've got heated benches. Rather than having big fan heaters in the greenhouse that cost a fortune to run, it's all done on benches. So it's the base heat which warms the roots up, which then warms the overall plant up. So whether it's cuttings, which I have a misting unit for, so base heat with a sprinkler system on top, um, which runs all through the day and night. It's quite technical, but I don't heat the greenhouses fully. And the thing which particularly interested me was your sweet pea crop. Uh, I mean, this time last year, I think you started for the first time, didn't you? Yes, it was my first year growing sweet peas on such a large scale. Um, I've only ever grown sweet peas in the garden in, in one or two pots. So it was quite a leap um, into the unknown. Didn't really know what I was doing, but uh, I was given lots of advice along the way. Give you an example of how big the space is. I have rows which are 40 metres in length and there's 12 rows and they are completely covered in sweet pea plants. So that's, that's the scale of how big I was working on. And actually grown in the soil. You tore up what was covering the soil, cultivated land for the first time probably in 15 or 20 years. I admire your nerve, you know. <laughs> well, I, I think um, the greenhouses have been up around about 20 years, I think. So um, that ground has been covered for, for all of that time, if not a bit longer. And it's been compacted by people walking, plants being put on it all the time. So trying to dig and rotivate in that soil was nearly impossible, but um, I managed it somehow. And I don't know how the plants done so well, but they did. I mean, they actually, the sweet peas actually grew right up to the roofs, didn't they? So they must have been, what, 15 or so feet high. Yeah, yeah, I think you're about right there. Yeah, they grew right up to the top of the glass, which I've never seen sweet peas so big. They were they were quite big. And then the job of picking seed pods too. I mean, there was rather a lot to harvest there, wasn't there? There was rather a lot. The man hours that went into it were more than I could give it. So I had to have a lot of help <laughs> along the way, um, work, working into the nights and because it's all done by hand. There's no machines, so it's all hand picking and you can't pick every pod until they're ripe but it, yeah it's it's quite precise but um yeah well it, it paid off in the end i mean when i called uh, to see you 
partway through that operation, I think you'd even pulled your mum in, hadn't you? I mean, the whole f- family, it looks as if they've been working away at it. it. It was a family affair. Yeah, I had my mum helping for a, a lot of the time and she still is um, at the moment. She's helping me to clear the place because uh, it's not just a case of growing them and preparing it. You then have to take them all down and dispose of them ready for the next year. So it's it's kind of a, a year-long project. And, and some varieties are more productive of seed than others, aren't they? Yes, that's right, yeah. Um, there was a couple of them which, even with um, one or two rows of 40 metres in length, we got only just a small handful of kilos um, out of that. So uh, some of them weren't great, but some of them were absolutely tremendous. So uh, it all depends on the variety of them. Yeah. And the second string to your bow, or it may be the first one, is hellebores. Can you tell us a little bit about what you do with uh, the oriental hellebores? Hellebores are a crop that I've worked with uh, for many years now um, because it's my first job. I was working with hellebores and selling hellebores. So they're a plant I've always loved. And to be able to uh, produce the seed now on such a large scale is yes something which um, I could only really dream of. So I've got 1,700 plants now and more, and I'm pollinating them. So they're inside the greenhouse. But what I do is I self-pollinate the plants with a, with a little um, paintbrush. You take the pollen from one flower and, uh, and pollinate all of the plants in that group with that pollen. For instance, if you've got a, a group of white-flowered hellebores, then you would only pollinate the white ones. So you do transfer pollen from plant to plant as long as they are of similar colour? As long as uh, it stays in the same batch of that colour, then yes, it doesn't matter if you mix the the pollen on the plants. It's just um, you have to sterilise the paintbrushes every time you use them because you don't want to put a a white paintbrush onto a um, pink flowered hellebore. So, So you have to be very careful with that. So you you pollinate the flowers as they open one by one. How long is that pollinating operation? And from then, when could you hope to collect seed? Um, pollination starts from now, so that the first flowers are in bloom now, and that will continue through to spring. Um, it'll probably finish about around about March, beginning of April, they can go on till, so quite a long time. Um, and then they won't set seed until about, I think, early June. So, uh, so yeah, it's June time when they start to produce the seed and that's when you have to go around and, and pick them. And, and you need to be on the ball because uh, presumably the, the pods will pop uh, and, and cast their seed naturally. How, how, how do you manage to time that? Yeah, it, it's tricky. A lot of growers will do it differently to me. On a smaller scale, you can bag the heads, which means that you still get the air around the flowers so they can breathe. But the if the flowers do pop open before you get to them, it saves the seed. However, on such a large scale like this, I can't possibly go around and bag every single flower. So it's a case of daily going round, if you see a pod which is going brown, which looks like it's going to pop open, that's when you harvest it. And as long as you let it dry out, it will, if it splits, then that's not an issue. But um, yeah, it's going to, at that stage, before it splits open, otherwise you can lose a lot of seed. Yeah, I can see that. Uh, Would you give any advice to people uh, who are buying young hellebore plants, perhaps some of them coming from your seed? You know, where do they like to be grown? How can we best get good results from them? So 
So hellebores are an amazing winter flower. When there's not much else in flower apart from the the winter bulbs, um, you've got the hellebores that produce spectacular colours. Buy them now, they'll be fine. If you plant them in the ground, they'll hopefully flower this winter if if you get a good um, established plant. Because hellebores are one of those plants which if they're only a year or two old, they might not flower. But if you've got a three-year-old plant, anything that age or more will flower and uh, that that will then eventually bulk up into such a, a size where you can actually divide that plant as well. So in the fourth, fifth, sixth year, you can always take that plant out the ground, take a spade or a, a sharp knife to it and split it. And then you'll obviously create more plants to scatter around the garden. Quite a phenomenal plant. And if somebody uh, has a plant with a particularly unusual or attractive colour, should they save seed from that or should they grow it on and split it? I mean, what what should they do if we find something really exciting in the garden? Yeah, there's a whole range of colours of hellebores. What you can do, if they're planted outside in the wild, they pollinate each other. So you do get some interesting uh, new varieties come up. So, uh, so yeah, if you've got anything that looks exciting, then do harvest that seed and sow it. But just be warned that if you sow that seed, it might not come true to type. So with the seed that I grow, I have to keep it in a greenhouse where I can't let any pollinators in. So no bees, no flies, no no insects, um, because they can pollinate for me. So that's what I don't want to do. So if I do the straight pollinations myself, that seed will come true to type. If they're outside in a garden environment, that might not be the case. You seem to have picked up a lot of experience in a, a relatively short time, Chris. But a number of you young horticulturists have formed some sort of group now and communicate with one another, I believe. Could you tell me a bit about that? Yeah, the Young People in Horticulture Association. It was formed only about a year ago, um, just after I set up the business. I heard about this group, so I joined it instantly, thinking what an amazing idea. Um, Because to try and introduce young people into the industry is very, very challenging, because obviously word is out that um, schools don't talk about it enough and it's 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 not seen as a high paid industry so so this group is there to promote the fact that gardening and horticulture in general is just it's a great industry to be in and I love it I wouldn't do anything else like I couldn't dream of being in another industry to be sat behind a computer all day doesn't <laughs> it it doesn't uh, seem right to me so I need to be outdoors and hands on so uh, this is a way to promote that fact and get more young people involved I'm afraid, Chris, that we're keeping you in front of a computer today as we speak on Zoom. (laughs) What does your young group do? Do you have meetings? What do you do? Uh, Well, we have um, a few groups set up on on the likes of WhatsApp and Facebook where we can all interact and uh, ask questions to one another. But what we do have is every other week we have Zoom talks by people in the industry, um, whether that be on plant breeding or or um or ex- exporting plants or anything like that people will um talk to us offer their time um usually free of charge but um they will help us to get an understanding of the things we don't know in the industry so we have regular talks last year it was difficult to go out and see one another but we do have um, events planned where we can all go out and interact. And uh, yeah, I I can't wait for the first one. I know we've got an event booked early next year at some point. So uh, looking forward to that one for us all to get together. So if there's anyone uh, listening who wants to uh, 
link up with you, how do they join your new grouping? Uh, there's a website which is ypha.org.uk. So if you go to that, all the details are on there. Now, what chance me joining then, Chris, this young horticulturist uh, grouping? What, what age do you get kicked out? Uh, unfortunately, it only goes up to the age of 35. So I've got another, I think, nine years to be part of the group and then I get kicked out. <laughs> Chris, it's great to speak to you. I wish you every success, uh, particularly with the sweet peas being a, a plant that, you know, I've grown for a good many years and particularly love to see seed being produced back in East Anglia. We used to be world leaders with uh, sweet pea seed growing and, and now you're ploughing that furrow once again. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. We need more UK growers. That's what we need. More UK growers. Quote for the week comes from footballer Wayne Rooney, uh, who remembers uh, his Manchester United boss, Sir Alex Ferguson, telling him, the hardest thing to do is to work hard every day, whatever you do. Wayne said, uh, it's so true to get up out of bed in the morning continuously for years and years. It's a hard thing to do. Well, uh, I have to tell you, with very sharp frosts every morning this week and a cold wind from the north and east. It does take some effort to get out of bed, especially with my central heating switched off in an effort to uh, reduce the CO2 coming from my chimney. Let's hope it gets a bit warmer fairly soon. Look forward to speaking to you next week. My thanks to this week's sponsor, Montrose, in Soham, Cambridgeshire. To my producer, Rich Jarman, and to you for listening. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.